Hey everyone, if you like the content that you're hearing, uh, please support the show. Uh, we have subscriptions up right now for a monthly dollar a month or up to whatever donation you feel uh, comfortable with. And also, you can hit my link R, which is in uh, the description of the show, uh, to send me donations for Venmo and Cash App. And all this goes into bringing in better quality and also better content. So thank you. Have a good day. One love, one growth, as above, so below. Feel the pain in my soul, the rep he'll dissolve. Organized, no matter the cost. Politicians starts wars, they don't fight, they sit the poor. And nothing lasts forever as long as we stay together. Give hell to the masses, watch the unity rapture. For the kids in the culture, it's one love, one growth, one light, light warriors. Hello, everybody out there um, in the podcast world. Um, today is another very special uh, episode that I have for everyone. I got to say, it's an absolutely pleasure to have this comrade um, and talk with him again, Peter Goslin. Um, Peter Goslin is one of the most dopest people on the planet, and it's always great to see you. <laughs> hey, it's always great to have a chance to see you as well. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk about things that are going on in the world and stuff like that, and to give a great political insight on exactly how we should look at things, you know, um, especially how Western media try to betray with choosing sides and doubling down when they know they're wrong <laughs> and all this mm-hmm. stuff. There's nothing wrong with a little nuance, isn't there? There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the notifications. I hope they don't come up in the recording. So I uh, apologize to whoever heard that notification. Um, yeah. Um, Peter, how, how, how have you been, bro? How, how, how are things? Well, you know, uh, like everybody else, we're surviving the pandemic, right? I mean, uh, I, I can say it's uh, wonderful. It's it's not wonderful. It's uh, we're still struggling along. Yes, yes. I've got into a little trouble. I did a little interview with a doctor who ended up not being uh, who he says he was. He lost his license and stuff, and Ooh. we talked about COVID. There was a few things that I've agreed with that I felt were factual. And there was a, a lot of other things that I didn't agree with that I felt like that wasn't factual. Um, so it's a breath of fish air to get somebody out of here that is actually like legit who they are. <laughs> and with that, I was, you know, COVID. This this is this is an episode that's probably gonna get demonetized. So whoever watches this, I really, really, really appreciate this. Um, our episode last time got demonetized. I forgot to tell you that, Peter, because we were talking about uh Ned Lamont and William Tong. Um, so I guess the DNC algorithm was like, oh, no, suppress this video. Suppress yeah. this video. <laughs> yeah, funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> right? And they literally, it literally left me a notice though, saying, no, you cannot um, have this content on because you're talking about political figures and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, screw that. I do what I want. <laughs> Well, you know, it's like, uh, you know, back in the 80s, like the Clash said, you know, you have the right to free speech. You just don't have the right to use it. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, have you been noticing what's going on and how they're punishing the workers? Like, Oh, man. 
Especially the um, healthcare workers right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really interesting how this story is developing, right? Because on the one hand, uh, you know, just a few months ago, the story was uh, nobody wants to go back to work. Uh, everybody's lazy because they're living on unemployment benefits. Uh, if if only we hadn't given all those uh, federal unemployment benefits to people because of COVID, uh, the restaurants would be would be open and and everybody would be having a good time. Uh, and then the story developed a little bit. It began to be, hey, you know what? It turns out that even when you stop those unemployment benefits, there's still a shortage of workers who are willing to work for really crappy wages. And now it's turning out that this is starting to manifest as more and more people resisting these, you know, working under these bad conditions, that there's been more labor, labor strikes and labor actions this year than in, you know, mm. probably the last decade. Uh, mm. and, uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, a lot of informal resistance, right? Not just places where people are organized in unions, but people are walking off the job, people are quitting their jobs, uh, and you know they're fighting back against these against the bad conditions. But at the same time, this one story that I think is not getting covered at all. I mean, it's notable when there are strikes going on, and you know the liberal media starts actually talking about the fact that there are strikes going on. That's pretty notable. But the one thing that they're not talking about is this: that in the background, while you have certain employers in certain sectors, like the service sectors, for example. Uh, talking about there being a labor shortage and they can't hire enough help. At the same time, in a lot of, there are definitely sectors in which uh, the employers are using the pandemic and the circumstances around the pandemic to get rid of people who they consider to be problematic. Mm. And by that, I mean, uh, certainly people who are complaining about their working conditions are trying to organize, but also older workers, workers with long-term disabilities, pregnant workers, uh, you know, people who have workers' comp, you know, workers' compensation injuries. Um, you know, I'm getting calls every single day from people who have worked for their employer sometimes for years uh, and always, you know, turned in a good week of work every week and earned their paycheck and who suddenly find themselves out on the street with no recourse. And it's just a matter of like, you know what? The boss has decided that uh, they, they don't care to have people who might need to have medical attention at some point in time uh, or might need some kind of a special accommodation because of their disability or might have to take time off to have a baby. Um, yeah. they're, they're, you know, they're looking to purge as many of these folks out of the workforce as they can. Jesus Christ. Wow, and I, I, and what what will strike me is how you said that um, how you're seeing a lot of uh, call to actions um, with striking and work working relations rallies that are going on right now, um, which has been a spike from the last ten years. Um, do, what it, do you do you have any highlights for my audience of like who 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 to look at, which campaigns to pay attention to? Um, here in Connecticut or anywhere else in the United States that, that comes to mind? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the Kellogg's workers are on strike. Um, that's a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. That That's still going on. Uh, the um, uh, John Deere tractor, uh, you know, major manufacturer is still located in the United States. They, they, mm -hmm. they just went out. Um, the, uh, 
um, I was just reading this morning, not, not a strike, but um, University of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. University of Pittsburgh uh, just had a union election. The union faculty voted 75% in support of organizing union. They've been trying to organize a union in the faculty, among the faculty at the uh, University of Pittsburgh for like decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, is, this was the year. Um, uh, there were something like, um, I want to say that the vote was something like in the neighborhood of, uh, like 1500 to 500, something like that. It was, it was very, very strongly pro pro union and it was a, and it's a good size. It's a, it's a big bargaining unit. So it's a seriously large unit, um, and a, a big accomplishment. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're seeing, we're definitely seeing some big strikes. We're definitely, definitely seeing other forms of resistance. We're definitely seeing people organizing unions and other kinds of, you know, not just traditional unions, but also other kinds of more informal resistance. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's um, it's it's a it's a big shift. It's a big shift from where we've been for the last ten years, but big shift from where we've been for the last forty years, really. Right, 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 right. And especially in a time and age where the unions don't really have as much power as they used to back in the day. Um, it's given a pre it's given a real reason to start unionizing again. And, you know, I'm always for unionizing. This sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> hey, uh, g- general, general dollar, right? Now general, general dollar, one of the dollar store chains uh, that actually over the last couple of years has sucked up some of the other dollar store chains. Um, gen- the workers at general dollar uh, up in um, upstate New York, uh, organized the first union at a general dollar store. Wow. Um, that's, that's a significant, that's a significant movement. You know, dollar stores, I mean, you know, this, uh, these, these places very often are in, uh, uh, low income communities, both, right. both in oppressed communities, as well as like, you know, rural, semi-rural white communities. Right. Um, you know, um, they, they, their, their customer base, are working class folks uh, who don't have the money to go to, you know, Costco or Target uh, for a lot of things. Um, you know, being able to get things at a low price uh, is really paramount. Right. Um, and General Dollar is making millions and millions of dollars from this customer base. Uh, right. And it's not exactly the first place you'd expect to be or- people to be organizing a union, but it's a really good right. indicator of the time that we're in. Right, right. That, that these folks who are most who are really like low wage service workers, you know, cashiers, people stocking shelves, people unloading, you know, uh, unloading trucks uh, on the on the docks in the back. Um, the fact that they've decided that they want to unionize is a pretty significant uh, measure of the times, I think. Yeah, that's that's absolutely awesome. Um, a dollar store. Wow. You know, that's just that's unheard of. You know, it is. It is. Think about like big corporations that are like, I don't know, say Google or, you know, what's going on with Amazon, the certain regions of Amazon or the dollar store. Wow. That's 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 awesome. (laughs) The fact they were able to pull that off. Yeah, absolutely. Is this like one store or is it like a region? No, no, it's it's just one store. It's just it's just one store. But it's uh, a, you know. Yeah, it, it, I, I believe it will. I believe it will. Oh, and then, of course, the other thing, I don't want to forget about this, but the other big story 
Um, you know, folks have been hearing a lot about shortages lately, and yeah. they're aware of the fact that, you know, uh, the, the way they describe it in the business publications is like a supply chain shortage, um, yeah. which basically means um, that they don't have enough, really what it means is they don't have enough truckers to, uh, to, uh, to unload uh, ships in, in the major ports in the United States and put them on trucks and get the goods distributed across the country. Uh, and one of the biggest ports, of course, is Los Angeles. Uh, they, there's um, uh, something like uh, 13,000 truck drivers that, that, uh, that, that pick up loads from, um, from the port of Los Angeles uh, every, you know, every week. Um, and uh, uh, a big group of workers their big group of truck drivers um, were just, they just settled a, a wage and hour lawsuit. Um, essentially, uh, these are the folks who people often think of as being owner operators or independent contractors. Uh, and more and more as the, as the big chains have been using them to move their goods, they put them under tighter and tighter control and they start to look more and more like regular employees. And so the settlement was about whether or not this group of truck drivers were actually employees rather than independent contractors. Because if you're an employee, it means you're covered by minimum wage laws, overtime laws, uh, you know, all anti-discrimination laws, all that stuff. So, um, so it's a big uh, deal that they settled this. And it's a $10 million settlement. Uh, it means that all these workers are going to get a big chunk of change. Um, but the real significance of it is this, that the Teamsters unions, uh, Union has been trying to organize truckers in the Port of Los Angeles for years. And the biggest impediment to organizing them has been the fact that legally, the, the government treated these people, most of these drivers, as owner-operators or as independent contractors. The fact that we got this settlement uh, in, this, in this major wage and hour case saying, recognizing the fact that this group of workers are employees is the next important step in the process of solidly unionizing truckers in the Port of Los Angeles. And when mm -hmm. that happens, that's going to that's gonna really be transformative. That's going to mean right. um, a major, all of a sudden, the Teamsters Union is going to control a major artery of, um, you know, the distribution of goods all over the United States in a way that hasn't happened since, you know, maybe the 1950s. Uh, it's it, if when they accomplish that, it will be a huge step forward. But this is a, you know, it's a process, right? And this uh, winning this uh, or settling this lawsuit was a big step in the right direction. Right. That that uh, opens up a lot in my mind as working as a uh, food uh, service worker in the hospitals. Um, you could see the impact of the shortage all the time. Yeah, I mean, God, yesterday, half the things that were ordered on certain patients' um, trays, we couldn't even give them. We were running oh, out yeah. of everything. It's 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 real, and it's been going on for a while now. And I I'm sitting here thinking, like, there's something bigger than this. Why is it a shortage like this? Because it's never been like this. You know, and that that is like huge. That's going to be a turnaround. Um, yeah. If and for the t if the Teamsters are able to like 
get that get that back and unionize all these truck drivers that is going to be a big turnaround because it's it's felt it's definitely felt um they're literally trying different products different name brands and stuff and it's just you know we keep running out on everything um and it's it's a toll because it's not only we're running out of things we're also low staff too <laughs> right that's right You're trying to make make do with less goods and less workers right so it just it just becomes even more stressful just even working it um i've been pulling my hair for the <laughs> last <laughs> three <Yep>. weeks <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a bad situation. I mean, I think most of us have seen it at least to some extent. You go into a supermarket or you know, I was actually in a I was actually in a CVS drugstore this morning and I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, now instead of you know, you remember you know how they have always had the baby formula locked up, right? right. You know, uh, that that's like, oh boy, we gotta make sure people don't shoplift baby formula. Uh now uh uh batteries, uh all kinds of stuff in the CVS locked up so that you, you have to have a, somebody in the store has to like unlock it so that you can, so that you can buy a package of, you know, double a batteries. Right. Oh wow! Uh, and at the same time, uh, they, uh, uh, the CVS, uh, and I just noticed this, this is like such a weird thing. The CVS has eliminated grocery carts and, uh, and hand carts. Mm. And so they, basically have made it really, really difficult for people to shop at the same time that the goods on the shelves are less and less. And I'm looking through there. I'm like, you know, picking up, uh, you know, toothpaste and mouthwash and a few other things. And I'm like, boy, uh, the name brands are shrinking. I noticed the amount of space that some of these, uh, some of these kinds of items are they're taking on the shelves are getting smaller. Um, They're actually reorganizing their store to adjust to the fact that there are shortages. Um, which means to me, CVS is one of the, you know, is one of the biggest, um, you know, of the, uh, drugstore, uh, and, you know, prescription drug and convenience store chains, um, means to me that they know something, um, if they're actually reorganizing their store around the fact that there are going to be shortages, um, of products, that means that this isn't a short-term thing. Uh, it's, it's not just that there are, you know, we don't have enough truckers unloading trucks, It's that, um, you know, it's that there's a production problem. Um, And I think we're going to be looking at, I think in the immediate future, we're going to be looking at more shortages. I think we're going to be looking at some serious inflation, which is going to really scare people because, damn, shit already costs too much. Um, You know, I mean, just the the essentials of life already cost too much and they're going to cost more. And it's going to mean, you know, I noticed that in the... uh, you know, we, we, we go back and forth, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We get, um, in, in my house, we go to uh, um, uh, uh, an Asian-owned produce store, a produce market, um, to get our produce whenever we can because um, that's the best place to, like, save money because they don't have big displays. It's not like a supermarket where they spend tons of money on advertising. On the other hand, sometimes we're like, gee, we'd really like to get some, like, really, really nice fruit. Um, so then we go to the Whole Foods, and as you're going, as I'm going back and forth between these two different places, I start noticing, gee, the, the like the quality and the price in the uh, in the Asian market is is going down, and the quality and the, uh, the the quality is going down in the Whole Foods as well, but the prices are going up. Um, 
you know, this, there's, there, there's something going on as far as, uh, um, uh, you know, food supplies, as far as, um, you know, in terms of uh, how agriculture uh, is being distributed. Um, and I think we're going to see some serious, I think this winter, we're going to see some serious price increases, um, serious shortages, uh, generally speaking, you know, inflation. And the most important thing, um, the bosses are going to blame it on us. They're going to say the problem is that people aren't willing to work for $12 an hour or, you know, in some parts of the country, seven thirty-five an hour, which is the federal minimum wage. Uh, you know, they say people aren't work, willing to work for less and look what's happened. The prices are going up and there's not enough stuff on the shelves, et cetera. I'm like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is that at the same time that, that we're saying we want decent wages and better working conditions and workers are unionizing in order to do that, the boss is saying, yeah, okay, well, if you force us to do that, maybe we're going to do it, but there's no way we're going to take a cut in our profits. You know that we're, we we have to get as big a piece of the pie as we ever got. Um, you know, we have to make as big a profit as we ever did. Um, so maybe that's going to mean that prices are going to go up. And, you know, it's not a problem for them, right? It's just a problem for us. Right, right, right. And, you know, just thinking back on, like, Walmart. I went grocery shopping Walmart. Um, Walmart has a very big supermarket here in New Haven. Um, there's nothing there. Like I had to scramble around to find things. There's no plastic bags neither. Where mm-hmm. you have to bring your own bags. Um, I found I saw a few customers that were asking, um, "Hey, where are the bags?" Like they were like so shocked. They're like, "Well, we ran out of bags. We don't have bags." And they're yeah. like, "What? How? How?" Like it, like it was a real thing. Like I was so shocked to hear that too. And I was like, "Wow, it's it's really happening." Um, this is exactly what we socialists been talking about from the get-go <laughs> since the beginning with the United States. <laughs> it's going to get bad. Um, and they're going, like you said, they're going to literally blame the workers. They're yeah. not even going to take accountability. I mean, look, look at the mayor, not the mayor, the governor of Connecticut, Lamont, trying to get people to get get vaccinated and if they don't get vaccinated they're going to get terminated uh, my job is already has already fired a few people quietly mm-hmm. for not wanting to vaccinate i've heard about a pastor that works there and he didn't want to get vaccinated for religious reasons but he definitely has immunization he's been around it he's been helping out and they quietly asked him to leave hmm. uh, new york they're they're talking about seventy thousand healthcare workers that they're talking about replacing with the state, with with, with freaking um national guard, and they're like, yeah. oh, this is God, God's plan. God wants us to do this. <laughs> that lady is crazy. That lady is batshit crazy. <laughs> She's like, well, she, I think she said she had like a, a, she has like a necklace of a vaccine on her neck or something like that. It's I don't I don't know. It's just it's getting really weird, Peter. Yeah. Well, here's here's the you know here's the story. You probably have heard me tell this story before, but but uh, uh, I tell it every chance I get because I think it's really important. Um, back in uh, around um, around around nineteen eighty six, nineteen eighty seven. So you know, long time ago now, right? But around eighty six or eighty seven, there was a recession. Eighty seven. Uh, and, uh, 
I remember that uh, Street Journal newspaper ran this article. I happened to be uh, on a on a plane and somebody had left a copy. I don't ordinarily read the Wall Street Journal, right? But there was a copy of it there and I'm looking right. through this. And this article, and the article is telling me about, now this is 1987. The article is about how there was this big uh, conference of major business leaders in the United States, mostly like ma manufacturing sector business leaders. And this was the theme of the conference. It was that, you know, up until now, uh, American corporations um, have been putting out the message that the benefit of capitalism is that eventually everyone all over the world is going to raise their wages and their living standards because of the availability of American technology and American products. And so, you know, uh, we eventually, no matter where you are, whether you're in Indonesia or in, uh, you know, in, uh, in South Africa, uh, or in Venezuela, um, you know, you're going to have the benefits of American capitalism because your standard of living is going to improve and the way the labor standards, the wages are going to go up. Everyone's going to be happy, right? That was always the message of American capitalism from the end of World War II, right up until right up until Reagan came into office in 1980. But in 87, they had this business conference and they said, from now on, we have to refocus. Instead of talking about how we're going to raise the standards in the developing countries, we have to start getting American workers accustomed to the idea that their standards are going to go down to the level of these developing countries. And it's, you know, it's been a grad up until now, it's been a gradual process. But, you know, every major recession that's taken place has has pushed our labor standards down. It's pushed our standards of living down. And um, and we never actually recover from them. There's a certain there's a layer at the top that 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 makes a lot of money off of the recession. They come out of them, you know, with uh, more money and more control, more power than ever. But the great majority of workers in the United States, every recession, it pushes us down and we never quite get back to where we were before. And I see this in my job because, you know, as a labor lawyer, because when I started practicing law, you know, some 26 years ago, uh, when I started practicing, I would get calls from people. Uh, I just got fired from my job after working for my employer for like 20 years. And then after a while, it was like, I just got fired from my job where I've been working for my employer for 10 years. Now, somebody calls me up and says they've been working for somebody for five years. I'm like, wow, you've been there for a long time. Right. You know, people used to work for an employer for a lifetime. Now, if they can hold a job, the same, a job with the same employer for five years, that's a big deal. Right. Um, and that's part of this process of pushing the labor standards down and pushing the standard of living down for people to the point where, uh, where uh, there's constant insecurity on the job. You never know whether you're going to have a job from one day to the next. The boss can fire you at any time for any reason at all and get away with it. Um, you know, they're going to make people compete for scraps for like, you know, how little are you willing to work for? How, right. how much abuse are you willing to take on the job? Um, that's going to determine, you know, uh, w whether or not you have a job. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you're right. I mean, we've talked about this as socialists. We talked about this forever. Um, but this last, you know, 30 or so years, um, things have taken a decisive turn in this direction in the United States, in a place where 
you know, basically imperialism uh, uh, allowed capitalists in this country to, to give us a little bit more privilege, especially white people, white men, a little bit more privilege, a little bit higher wages, a little bit more job security, a little bit better benefits. And all of that is going away. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're en route right now to, um, you know, to a American workplace that really doesn't look all that much different from, you know, any number of other, any number of developing countries. Um, and, uh, uh, that's what the, you know, that, that's, that's, that's their, their long-term plan, uh, get as much work for as little as possible, automate as much of it as they possibly can, um, you know, dispense with our work as much as they, as, as much as they possibly can. Right. Right. And of course, the problem is they do that, but then they've got to have somebody to sell products to, right? Yeah. So who are they going to sell products to? If we can't Everybody's afford to buy broke. them, who are they going to sell products to, right? Right. So right. it's a contradiction. <laughs> contradiction it, of capitalism. It is. And the more, I think the more we get deeper to the rabbit hole, like what's been happening with the uprise as of right now, it's just going to get bigger and bigger. And the Western media is ignoring it as much as they can. And it's going to get to the point that they can't ignore it, you know? And they're going to have no choice but to say something about it. And they're probably going to say something idiotic, like, you know, something elitist. And then they're going to get destroyed for being <laughs> elitist and not changing their opinions ever. Um, I, I just I just think it's uh, really interesting, um, you know? And you see, you see the homelessness, for instance, that's going on in a lot of people are now ma are making you see exactly like the, where the money is going you can find out that people are making money like six figures just to say that their job is to eradicate homelessness but they don't eradicate oh yeah um, right because they'd be putting themselves out of a job if they did that right exactly and it's like there you know what the issue is but capitalism just can't help you solve it at all yeah the system itself is rigged to the point that, okay, we can put money towards a cause, but that doesn't mean that we're going to fix this cause. That doesn't mean we're going to access, actually give a solution to the cause. But what the solution is now? Oh, Venice Beach used to be such a very nice place, and now there's nobody. Now there's people there that are intense, and they're doing drugs. It's all drugs. Everybody's on drugs. I, that's what I heard about from this podcast from this guy on freaking Joe Rogan was talking about. Oh, I talked to cops. I talked to all these people, and they told me that it's not the stories that, oh, they lost their jobs and their kids uh, got uh, put into the system because they couldn't help them or provide for them and stuff. It's the drugs. Everybody there is on drugs. And, yes, maybe there are people that are on drugs, but where are the systems to help those people that are on drugs? Right. We, well, we just keep blaming Blaming everybody for their actions instead of trying to actually give a solution so they don't have to go to that route. Like there's no, there's no well, solution. See, when you <laughs> when you're when you're homeless and you're taking drugs, then that makes you a drug addict. If you're rich yeah. and you're taking drugs, that means you're on vacation. Right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I, um, but you know, I mean, they they don't bother to ask. Like, okay, I, I have no doubt at all that in a, in a lot of these big uh, uh, homeless camps at like Los Angeles and Portland and Seattle. Uh, you know, where the, this has been like, an, and it become a really, really enormous um, uh, factor in the lack of affordable housing. And of course, we're seeing it, we see it on this coast as well. But um, 
I have no doubt that in these communities, um, the use of drugs is and alcohol is rampant. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't it be? People exactly. are living on the freaking street. What do you expect them to do? I mean, how miserable does somebody have to be before somebody says, hey, you know what? I understand why somebody might want to do drugs. You know, exactly. how much pain do they, how much physical pain do they have to be in because they can't afford to see a doctor? Hey, you know what? I'm going to get some weed. Uh, you know, I'm going to get something that's going to make me feel better. Um, how much pain do they have to be in before somebody says, hey, I understand why it is that you want to do this. Mm. Um, so, I mean, even, even to the extent that that's true, um, you know, what does it really reflect? What it reflects is we live in a society that has no problem with putting thousands of people, in, including families, including small children, onto the street, making them live homeless, uh, you know, and then blaming them for being homeless, as if somehow they had a choice in the matter, as if somehow, you know, there was like, a, I mean, look, y'all are in New Haven, right? I mean, Hartford yeah. is getting bad, but New Haven, forget about it. Yeah. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. I read these stories about like, oh, they're building, they're going to build an apartment complex and they're going to convert a, some old industrial building into apartments in New Haven. And the first thing I think of is like, okay, what's that going to look like? Like not going to be any, not going to be any working people living in those apartments. Oh, I can tell yeah. you that, oh, yeah. uh, that, that's, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the rents, the, the rents that, that y'all are dealing with is to are totally out of control. And we're yeah. seeing it here too. Um, you know, downtown Hartford, through ever since the, uh, uh, really ever since the uh, the Reagan era, downtown Hartford has been like anybody who visits there on a weekend. It's like a desert. Like there's nothing. There's nothing there. Um, they they basically uprooted all of the communities that existed in that area, and um, in order to build office buildings and parking lots, um, they took out all the old retail businesses. Um, you know when they failed. Um, and everything that's in downtown Harvard exists in order to serve the people who work in office buildings during the week, nine to five. Mm. So when you go into downtown Harvard on the weekend, the place is empty. And now it's starting to change. But the way it's changing is that they're building apartments and they're creating more and more apartments for uh, people who have money. Um, you know, it's not going to be like a new urban elite. Um, and they're not building housing in order to deal with the problem of homelessness, just the opposite. They're basically building housing so that they can lure people in from from their luxury housing in the suburbs to luxury housing in, you know, in urban areas. And yeah. it's not about it's not about making creating more housing for people. It's actually about creating less housing for people. No, now there's a cause and effect to everything that we do in this world. Uh, that's just the most scientifically proven statement on the planet there's a cause and effect to everything that we do i see that, um do you see that in new haven strongly um downtown new haven is lit up with mad luxury homes everywhere you look online mm -hmm. to try to see what these prices are going to be because our border alders told us and y'all lied sorry border alders but you fucking lied you told us that it was going to be mixed income housing and it wasn't fucking mixed income housing at all what is mixed income housing when the lowest rate of uh, the lowest of fucking rent there is thirteen hundred dollars and the highest is about three grand. Mm -hmm. Thirteen hundred dollars would get you a nice, decent studio apartment. 
But if you got a family and a kid, you need like a three bedroom, two bedroom, you better have three grand to, to, to dish out every single month. Um, I walked past one of those neighborhoods uh, because, you know, they're growing and I was flyering and stuff. And I ended up at one of the nice apartment complexes by accident. And the lady saw me, you know, white lady. She walked by, but she moved to the other side of the street. And then she went back to the same side of the street when she got past me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh, yeah, here we go, New Haven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is and everything that goes with it, right? Though? You know, like, you are know? we going to, like, force? Do we need to have, like, a, a work, a work, a renter's union in a way to force these um, development people to have lower prices? Are we going to have to force them to lower price their things? Like how how can we? What what can be the way to like fix this type of like tax and not tax of uh, rent rate that's so high and to make it be decreased? Yeah, you know, I was. It's funny because I've been thinking about this recently because I've heard uh, a lot of stories. Um, you know. Uh, uh, New Britain is another working class community in Connecticut where the downtown has traditionally for many years has been very poor, been a lot of homeless folks, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, really, really low quality housing, really not fit for human beings. Um, and, uh, and where all of a sudden they're starting to rehab these buildings and they're rehabbing them into luxury apartments. And I, uh, I, People have talked about it in New Britain. They've talked about it in Hartford. Like I said, I know that that New Haven. This has been a problem for a long time. Stanford, Stanford, the real estate, you know, the the rents in in Stanford, like it's like in New York City, uh, it's totally, tall. totally yeah. out of control. Yeah. Um, but it really has made me think. You know, there was a time uh, back, you know, after World War II, there was a time when people figured out a solution to this problem. And it's one that, you know, um, has really unraveled over the years. That's rent control. You know, New York City at one point in time had rent control that prevented landlords from raising the rent above a certain amount per year. And um, and the result was, it's, it's wild because, you know, you talk to folks who have lived in New York City for like a really long time. I know people who have apartments, you know, folks like my age or older, uh, folks who have apartments in New York City, they pay like these incredibly low rents because they're still subject to rent control. In most places, they've lifted them, but there are still some places where they haven't. So folks end up, we're, we're able to get housing, good housing, good quality housing at decent rates because the landlords were legally prevented from raising the rents. And... Uh, uh, and I don't know. I think we have to st- we have to take a really serious look at that again. Um, if there's one thing that makes the business and industry folks scream bloody murder, it's the idea of two things, right? One is workers organizing unions, and the other is uh, people organizing for rent control. Um, those are, I think, the, the their two biggest fears because they know that that the, the degree of power that that represents in a in a city to be able for workers to have the power to be able to regulate the housing market so that so that um the uh, the 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 real estate owners can't extort these huge profits and so that people actually have can afford a decent place to live that's a huge amount of power and it's exactly the sort of thing that they are terrified that we might have 
Um, just like right now, they're terrified that, you know, there are all these work stoppages and union organizing drives and strikes and everything else. Um, they're terrified of that. But, um, but it might be the case. I mean, frankly, you know, during the time that, uh, that I've been an activist, most of that time, we never had the, that, that degree of power. Mm. So every once in a while, you see in, certain, in, a, in a community for some period of time, a movement would develop and it would have some momentum to it and it would bring a lot of people into its orbit and it would make some really serious demands on the system and it would extract some concessions. But it was always very piecemeal. Like, you know, happen, it, might, it might happen in New Haven, but not in Hartford. It might happen in Boston, but not in New York. Um, now, this is more and more, people are beginning to recognize that the, the things they're dealing with on the job, the things they're dealing with in the housing market, the problems that they're dealing with uh, when it comes to healthcare, um, the conditions of our schools, these are common problems. These aren't problems that like, oh yeah, I heard the people in some other part of the country have to deal with this. Everybody's dealing with it. And everybody knows that everybody is dealing with it. And I think that's really the key. The point at which we start to look at things and say, you know what, we actually all have the same problem. We all have the same problem, which is generally speaking, is that there is a group of people in our society who make huge amounts of money and huge profits. And to make those profits, they will subject us to any degree of, um, of whether it's poor working standards or poor living conditions uh, or, um, you know, uh, homelessness. Uh, they will subject us to any degree of pain and suffering um, as long as it keeps their their profit margins up. Mm. Um, and so they, we have to be resolute about it. We have to approach it from the point of view that this really is a class struggle, you know, that it's working class people against another group of people, a group of rich people in our country, a group of capitalists um, who have a fundamentally different set of interests than we do. It's you not, know, it's they, Jeff Bezos. Maybe they're nice people, <laughs> maybe they're nice individual people, and you meet them and you shake hands with them and they're they're right. polite, you know, but their function in society is harmful to us. Their existence in society is harmful to us. Right. Their existence is driving us down and pulling us down. Um, and we have to begin to look at it that way. This is really, it's like, look, it's not about you, rich guy, personally. You know, don't take it personal. We don't personally mind that you like, you know, you want to send your kids to ski in Switzerland this winter. You know, um, of course you want good things for your kids. Of course you want to drive a nice car. Of course you want to have a big house. If I had tons of money, I would want to do those things too. Right. It's not, it's not you personally. It's that, it's that you are part of a system that in order for you to have those things, we have to hurt. We have to bleed for them. And we're done bleeding for you. That's just it. We're just done with that shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's so true. Just thinking about like, I was watching a show about, uh, I think it was American Horror Story, and they reenact what happened to the czars. Um, mm -hmm. And my friend was talking about, damn, they really did that to them. I was like, you need to realize those people, those people, those kids. That part of that family, they got executed because the wealth, the the power they all held was in the result of thousands of people starving to death and dying. Yeah. And yeah, it looks so sad the way that they're showing it. Yeah, it is sad. 
those they did sad. They were like 17, 20 years old getting massacred by um the the revolutionaries, um the Bolsheviks. But their existence didn't help. <laughs> their existence, their their father's power didn't help. They just they just struck poverty. They just gave out nothing but pain and suffering to their own people. Yeah. Just so they can have the wealth, the power. We're uh, oppressed people. We're so easy to humanize anyone. We're so easy to do that, but you can't humanize blood sucking capitalists. You just can't. And, you know, and, I'm, and I'm probably going to get <laughs> probably get some flag for that. But it's the truth. It's the truth. Jeff Bezos not going to give a damn about you humanizing him. He got all this damn money. He got all this damn money. He's not going to care. He's going to be Sorry. good. <laughs> you know, when you hear that, uh, you know, uh, in the midst of the pandemic last year, big news story was um, people are uh, people are moving out of New York City. Well, first of all, if you live in Manhattan, you got some serious cash. Um, you know, there are, there are no, there are no poor people left living in Manhattan. I mean, you know, those tiny little enclaves, tiny little neighborhoods where people are living like, you know, way too many people in the same apartment. But, uh, but basically, you know, people were like, yeah, uh, people are moving out of New York City. And like, yeah, what that means is rich people are moving out of New York City because they own property that's worth a lot of money and they can sell for a lot of money and they can move anywhere they want. And buy and buy property for a lot of money. So the story was, yeah, in parts of you know rural Connecticut and New Jersey and upstate New York, all these rich folks are going to leave New York City and they're going to buy houses out in the these you know out in these more remote areas because of the pandemic because they're afraid that things are going to get bad. And when you see that, you suddenly realize, like, you know, like I don't have a choice about where I like, realistically. If I'm good, like, I, you know, my wife and I have a mortgage on a tiny little house, right? And we, and we like our house, but it's not like we really have a big choice about where to live. Right. I mean, yeah, we could we could sell that house and move someplace else. The place we'd have to move to would be exactly like the place we're living in right now. It's not like we're going to move out to the country somewhere. Uh, it's not like we're going to, you know, it's not like we could live in New York City if we wanted to. Um, you know, our ability to move from one place to the other is extremely limited. So when you hear a story about people leaving New York to buy real estate someplace else, you know what you're hearing is like, yeah, this is what rich people are doing right now. They have the freedom to do that. We do not have the freedom to do that. And at every, you know, uh, I could also tell you we're all in this together. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, it's like, yeah, we're all in this fight together against the pandemic. Uh, but uh, the difference is that they're the generals and we're the people who are like on the front lines dying. Right. Um, and that's, you know, it's like, are we all in it together? Well, yeah, I guess in a certain sense, you could say we are. Um, you know, they have the resources that could make life easier for us, but they're not going to give it to us. Uh, and, uh, um, and on the other hand, they're counting on us to do the things that are necessary in order to continue to keep them in the lifestyles that they're accustomed to. Um, you know, I was thinking I, when you were saying this, uh, Jamar, a minute ago about, uh, uh, you know, about, uh, 
you know, rich people and poor people and the fact that oppressed people have been extremely forgiving, uh, excessively forgiving, if anything, right? Um, you know, there are two things I think about when, when you mention that, there are kind of two things that pop in my head at the same time. And one of them, and I think this is something that um, uh, a lot of um, like white working class people really need to hear, like they need, they really need to hear this, oh, that, yeah. that there is, um, that there's, there's this kind of popular myth that exists in white culture. Um, and it's perpetuated by the media all the time. Like whenever they do stories, like, for example, do a, you know, uh, a, a story about the Black Panther Party, right? And, and the way they present it is like Black Panther Party hated white people. Uh, yeah. you know, they do a, they do a, a story about, um, you know, uh, um, the, uh, uh, Muslim Americans in the United, but you know, they hate, they, they hate white people. Um, right. they do a story about, you know, um, uh, about crime in urban neighborhoods and they make it sound like, well, the real problem is if you're white and you happen to go there, something bad might happen to you. Um, and, you know, as an activist, as somebody who has like worked on issues involving things like police brutality and homelessness and poverty uh, for the last, uh, you know, 40 years, um, the one thing that I've experienced is that no one in this country has been more forgiving and more like introspective about the problems that people have than than oppressed communities. I think about the number the number of conversations I've had with you know with other black workers who are like telling me, yeah, you know what, um, I'm, I recognize the fact that I have prejudices. You know, uh, I, I, you know, and, uh, because everybody does. And so I try to take that into account when I'm dealing with white people. Like, you don't find white people with that kind of insight for the most part. People are looking at it from the point of view of like, well, yeah, sure. Since I treat people badly based on their skin color, I kind of assume they're going to treat me badly as well. Um, so I think that's one one piece of sort of recognizing uh, where we are in society right now, which is that white working people, people who have traditionally been privileged, really need to get a grip and they need to look at the fact that um, the things that you're com we're complaining about, the things that we justifiably are angry about, are things that black and Latin and, na and native people in this country have had to deal with for like the last couple of centuries. Um, and, and, uh, and if you want to find out like who knows about this stuff, I mean, that's one of the reasons to look at groups like the Black Panther Party, right? Because right. the Black Panther Party reflected um, the, 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 the knowledge and understanding that was accumulated through like several centuries of black people living in slavery in the United States and dealing with Jim Crow and dealing with racism. All that experience was distilled in the, in the program of the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so if we want to figure out if, if, if in the process of feeling our, like, gee, I, I really thought I was going to have it good. I thought my kids were going to go to college. I thought that I would have a good retirement. I thought I would have a secure job. Um, I can't figure out why I can't, we can't afford, you know, uh, treatment for like my, my kids cancer, you know, in the midst of all that turmoil, what people ought to be thinking about is, yeah, you know what? There are a lot of folks in this country who have always had to deal with this. And 
They've developed ways of dealing with this problem. They've developed ways of organizing. They have given us examples to follow. Um, and it's up to us to have the wisdom to say, hey, you know what? Um, these examples, um, you know, whether it was like sharecroppers organizing in Mississippi in the 1930s uh, oh. or, um, you know, or the Black Panthers uh, or any of the numerous other, the Million Man March, any of the times that, that people, oppressed people have demonstrated, like flexed their muscles and demonstrated like, you know what, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Right. That's what we should be learning from. Um, and we have to, we have to like shed this idea that somehow uh, uh, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to get together with a bunch of my white friends and we're going to change the world. Um, and and we just, we're not interested in the fact that other people have tried this before, that other people have had these same struggles. Um, we're going to come up with our own solutions to it. It doesn't work that way. Um, you know, um, oppressed people in the United States are a repository of all of the information that's needed about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, about how we got to where we are and how we can get out of the situation that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and leadership from oppressed communities is like got to be at the, the center of everything that we do politically. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, that's that's one piece of it. That's one piece of, of understanding the personal aspect of it. The other, and then the other piece of the personal aspect of it, like we, we were talking about before, is this business that, like, uh, is that folks are really, really super concerned about the feelings of of rich white people, um, you know, people who are who live lives that really are predatory on us. They're like vampires, really, They're like social vampires. Um, yep. They they have the things they have by taking them away from us. And we stand around worrying about whether their feelings are going to get hurt uh, right. or whether we're being sufficiently <laughs> nice to them. Right. <laughs> it gets yeah, I, on my nerves. <laughs> For instance, the we, biggest we have thing. To, right? right. And, we, and so we, we have to. And you, you mentioned this be, when, before we came on and when, I was, when we chatted yesterday, that right. we have to be sure and, and talk about Colin Powell, right? Um, yes. Because right now that's like the number one it's like a perfect example of what, of what we're talking about now on the one hand i know folks who i know folks who admired colin powell because of the fact that he's an african-american man who achieved status in this country that no one that, that no person of color ever had and especially some folks i know some some uh, black veterans that i know I respect the fact that they that that's part of their their thinking, Secretary but you know you take a step <laughs> you take a step back from that, and you say, okay, what are we really talking about here? This is a guy who, in his autobiography, described in glowing terms um, the process that that he used as serving in the military in Vietnam, um, burning villages, like burning down villages. Um, if the village, if people believe that the, if the U.S. military believed that these villages were infested with people who were basically patriots, um, who supported the revolutionary forces in Vietnam, mm -hmm. uh, uh, they would just go in and burn the village down. And invaders from another country, invaders from the United States, go into rural parts of Vietnam and they proceed to terrorize people. They, 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 they shoot people, they imprison people, they burn their villages down, um, you know, they torture them. Uh, and, uh, and 
Colin Powell was a part of that. He was one of the people who helped to make that possible. And and he he rose up through the ranks because of the fact that he was willing to do those things. Yep. Uh, and he ultimately achieved the position that he did in our society because of, frankly, how good he was at ordering people to kill other people for the benefit of capitalism. Um, and so there are folks who are like, yeah, you can't say bad things about dead people. Well, you know, I'm not particularly invested in the idea of saying bad things about dead people. I am invested in telling the truth about people. Exactly. Um, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the world would be a better place if we could forget that Colin Powell ever existed. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm not interested in celebrating the fact that he's dead, but I am interested in making sure that people know that because he lived the way he did, because of the choices that he made, he contributed to the deaths of literally millions of people, men, women, and children, civilian, not just military people, but, but civilians. You know, in Iraq, a million people died because Colin Powell stood up at the United Nations and said, you know what, we have proof that the Iraqi government is hiding weapons of mass destruction. Yep, he, he was got there. up and he made that speech. Yeah, yep. he, he got up and he made that speech. We can't just blame Bush. Can't yeah, blame that's Bush. right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I you know I don't blame Colin Powell any more than I blame Bush or any number of other people. <laughs> but you know, uh, but the, if they're gonna if they're gonna tell us that we have to you know, if they're gonna tell us that it's important to be mindful of the fact that somebody has just died, then I'm gonna be like, yeah, okay, that's great. We should be mindful of the fact that the person who just died was responsible for the deaths of millions of people, mm. um, you know, was was involved in major war crimes over a course of decades. Mm. Um, and we have to understand that that doesn't mean that he didn't look nice in his uniform. It doesn't mean that he wasn't very polite uh, and a nice person. And, you know, you could shake his hand and he would be. Uh, you could have a nice chat with him about his family or whatever. Um, it's not about who he was as an individual human being interacting with other individual human beings. It's that he made a decision to play a role in a system that systematically exterminates people who resist capitalism. Right. Um, and, and his role was he was one of the executioners. He was one of the people, not just one of the executioners. He was one of the, he was like the head executioner, right? The guy who on behalf of capitalism goes in and says, and, and says to everyone under him, okay, there's the enemy, go and kill them. That's not something that. What's that? Why do imperialists <laughs> outlive revolutionaries? Uh, well, you know, it's like vampires, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, right in the vampire movies, in vampire movies, vampires like live for centuries because they live off of the 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 life essence of other of other human beings of right. human beings, right? They live out far beyond their natural lifespan because of that. And it, it, what is capitalism but a system that takes the life essence of of the vast majority of people on this planet, not just in this country, the overwhelming majority of people on this planet, it takes their life essence and it turns it into the wealth that keeps a tiny group of people alive, you know, far beyond the time when they should have been like in the kick to the dustbin of history. Right. It's, it's interesting. It's, 
because I, I, I was thinking because I wrote a song called Those Capitalists of Vampires back in 2019, and it's so true. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's still the best comparison. So it's still the best comparison that anybody can make. It's just, it's, it's just, it's sad. And, you know, that's the reason why I stayed quiet about the whole Colin Powell thing and just post a uh, article because I really didn't have time to argue with people about defending a war criminal. Like, he, yeah. He, no, he, he he does not deserve my time. Yeah, <laughs> I, no, I dealt with already with Bush Senior because I, I went yep. in on Bush Senior and people were messaging me respect the family, respect the war criminal family. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, but you know, I will say this though that that's one of the things about like how we as socialists try to think about these kinds of issues not just about right. the reality of the truthfulness of them, but also about how we communicate them to other people. I mean, I go onto social media and I see that like with respect to Colin Powell, that there are people who are like, yeah, I want to dance on his grave. Um, you know, I, I want to celebrate <laughs> the fact that he's dead. And so it invites all these really, really angry responses. Mm-hmm. But as socialists, we ought to be able to look at this and think, okay, we know that people have these wrong ideas. So how do we, what what would be the most effective way to challenge these wrong ideas? And when I see these, you know, famous imperialists uh, who have passed, the presidents and generals and people like that, when they die and they're in the news, to me, it's not about like, let's celebrate the fact that they died. It's that let's point out on the occasion of their death, what this person was responsible for. Mm. So that the folks who we're talking to don't, may not necessarily have that visceral reaction of like, oh, yeah, no, you can't say bad things about dead people, but that it might actually make them think for a minute about, well, wait a minute, if I'm saying, if I'm going to mourn the fact that this guy died, um, maybe I have to actually deal with like the reality of what he did while he was alive. Um, You know, um, somebody said about Colin Powell um, that, uh, oh, you know, um, the thing is, uh, he later on said that he regretted, um, you know, being responsible for the playing the role he did with the Iraq war. So, you know what? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> that's great. That's really, really good. Here, here's what I would have at the very, very minimum. Here's what had to have happened. OK, like if Colin Powell had said at some point in time after the Iraq war, if he if he if he had publicly said, you know what? I reviewed the events that I was involved in. And I've come to realize that what I did was wrong. Um, what I did was profoundly wrong. I was responsible for the deaths of many, many good people, um, you know, who, um, you know, who never did anything to harm me or the American people. Um, and because I recognize that and because I want to take responsibility for it, I am giving up my military post. I am giving up all the honorariums, you know. Um, I want to just spend the rest of my life trying to think about how I can make up for the fact that I committed these horrible crimes. Right. That's a meaningful apology. That that's like, like you know, Jimmy Carter. He's kind of doing that. He's building yeah, houses no, for right. homeless people. You know. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's that's right. He's recognized the fact that that he was in the power structure and he played a role and he was part of the machine that was responsible for a lot of really bad stuff. He defended um, North Korea as well too back in the nineties about yep. talking about the sanctions and all that stuff, you know. 
Uh, examples, people. <laughs> it actually, that's right. I mean, it's not impossible. What we're asking for isn't crazy. We're just asking for, we're asking for the same things that, that society constantly asks of people who have committed crimes, right? right. Um, you know, I got a call the other day from a potential client who got fired from the first job that she had since she got out of jail. She'd been in jail for a couple of decades. And she left and she finished her sentence and she went out into the community and she got a job. And, you know, she, she's telling me, like, I don't know this, like, she's like, it's really hard to get a job when mm. you've been in jail for, you know, a long time. Mm. I said, seriously, no kidding. Um, a lot of employers won't even talk to you. She finally gets this job and she has the job for like four months because she's constantly being sexually harassed on the job and really being just treated like crap. Um, and, and then, and, and she speaks up and she gets fired for it. Um, and I, and I look at that and I think, you know, here's somebody who paid a really high price for whatever bad thing they did. I, you know, it's not up to me to say whether, you know, they, that's the penalty that she should have had to pay. The fact is she paid an enormous price for the things that she did and she's still paying for it mm. and she, you know, she's going to be paying for it the rest of her life. And when people in power make mistakes, somehow we never say, you know what? They should have to pay the same way that we pay. Right. You know, when, when I make a, if, if I'm working in a job and I make a really serious mistake and I get fired for it, that's a huge penalty for me. Um, if I break the law and I go to jail for it, uh, that's a huge penalty. Um, we never seem to expect those penalties for the people who have committed crimes on behalf of the ruling class in the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's why I say I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I don't feel the need to tell people that I would dance on Colin Powell's grave. I do feel <laughs> the need to say, I do feel the need to say, you know what? If he really regretted what he did, he should have taken responsibility for it publicly. He should have denounced it. Um, and he should have said, um, you know, I'm no longer going to be part of this system that, that victimized people in this way because I've come to realize that it's wrong. And if you haven't done that, if they, if they don't do that, that they, they haven't been held accountable, they haven't taken responsibility and they can't, from, from my perspective, at least, they cannot be forgiven for something that they've never apologized for. Right. Right. Thank you so much for that, Peter Gosselin. That was so beautifully explained. I'm going to definitely chop up this segment and add that in um, <laughs> right before this episode dropped. Definitely. So people can get a full understanding because it's so true. You know what I mean? We, we are literally brainwashed or brainwashed to believe in want to be more accepting of people that are of, of the higher class or the oligarchs, the imperialists, but we have no compassion for those who are not doing as well as we are, mm -hmm. um, the American tradition. And as much as people would say that that's not true, you see their true character. And then you, in order for us to educate them on it, we have to make the right ways of doing it. The, to be dumbed down for them so they can understand. And it's not saying dumbed down as in an insulting way. No, 
like, like for instance, all, Break it not down all propaganda. Exactly. Not all propaganda is bad. There's good propaganda and there's bad propaganda. You break it down to basics. That's like propaganda. You, you're able to give them something simple that they can grab and, and hold on to, and it will educate them. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and people develop their consciousness based on those bits and pieces. Right. You know, uh, you start out by recognizing that, well, gee, maybe the United States, maybe the people who are responsible for killing people, you know, a million people in, in Iraq, um, you know, maybe they didn't do that to, def- to defend us. Right. You know, maybe they did right. for some other reason. That's, and, and that's we a, know that. That's a starting Right. People, people know that. There's a good reason for them to know it. The, the information is available. There's no reason. It's not a secret. It's not being hidden from them. Um, it's an uncomfortable truth that they're going to that they have to deal with. Right. Um, and I don't want to like overload them. You know, I don't want to yeah. like hit them with something that they can't deal with. Um, but I do want them to start thinking about, um, you know, these fundamental truths that someone who's committed a crime who has never apologized for that crime doesn't deserve to be forgiven for that crime. Right. 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 And then, and you know, and, and people, and it's so important to explain what an actual apology will really mean because people would take, Oh, well, he said in, in, in front of thousands of people, like, like Obama, for instance, I'll bring up Obama real quick. What happened in Syria? He was like, Oh, Later, a few years later, that wasn't the right decision to make at the time. I should have never have done that. That's not really an apology. I'm just saying, no. oh, I should have did something else. No, no. <laughs> you know what? Thing. You know what? Here's the thing: if you if you if you uh, if you walked out of a store, if you like what if you if you walked into the supermarket and you walked out of the store and you had like shoved a bunch of steaks and shit into your pockets and you didn't pay for them and they arrested you and you had to appear in front of the judge. If you appeared in front of the judge and said, Your Honor, you know, I recognize that it was a mistake for me to do that. Um, and that's and that was that was the extent of it. Like I recognize that it was a mistake <laughs> to do that. I, I regret that now. I wish that I hadn't done it. Um, right. the judge is not gonna the judge is not gonna be impressed. The judge is not <laughs> gonna say, Wow, and you know, here's somebody who's really seriously repented for the for the things that they have done. Right. They're gonna say, Hey, so what you're telling me is you regret the fact that now everybody knows that you did something that was that was wrong, right. um, and that you might very well end up paying some kind of penalty for it. Um, and uh, and that's not enough. That's not taking responsibility for your actions. That's just regretting the fact that you got caught. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's all that is. The information came out. Your name was on it. You and Hillary. And now you're all just like, Ugh. I mean, she literally was on camera rejoicing. The, the the murder of Gaddafi, like on camera, she's like, "Yes, we got him," and all that ish. Like, come on, man. Like, the, the 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 one thing that the thing we keep on, you know, the, when it comes to, yeah, I think especially when it comes to to Libya, you know, the story that just sticks in everyone's minds and that no one is able to forget. Anyone who's in, acting in good faith and actually wants to understand, like what happened. The one thing that we know for an absolute truth is that prior to the U.S. intervention, Libya was a prosperous country with a, with a single unified government that provided a high degree of social services and support for its people. I can't say whether it was, you know, I don't think it was the best country on earth. I don't think that the people were the freest people on earth. Uh, you know, I don't think that, that uh, you know, the policies of the, 
of the um, Qaddafi government were the best possible policies. Mm. But I do know that they didn't have slave markets then, and they have slave markets now as a direct result of what the United States did. Um, you know, that's all I really, really need to know. Um, there are some direct consequences of those actions that are horrendous. And anyone who's acting in good faith, anyone who's an honest, making an honest inquiry has to deal with the fact that U.S. intervention in Libya, in Iraq, in Syria, and all these places has had horrendous, horrendous outcomes. Um, it doesn't make any difference how well it, it, it doesn't make, even if we want to believe that the intent, their intentions were good. And personally, I don't. But even if we wanted to believe that their intentions were good, even if we wanted to believe that they thought they were doing the right thing, history has proven that they were wrong. Right. And they have to take responsibility for that. And if they don't take responsibility for it, what it tells us is they're, just, they're simply going to continue to do it. They're going to do it again. Yep. And Afghanistan is a huge example of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. And uh, Peter, there's so much more we could talk about. I don't want to take <laughs> more of your time. <laughs> I'm not going to do pull the Joe Rogan and have like four hour long podcasts and stuff. <laughs> One day, but not today. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but God, there's just so much to impact to talk about on here. Um, definitely going to try to like swing my ways around the demonetization and stuff. Spotify has been really <laughs> good about that. Thank, shout out to Spotify for helping me out. They don't really demonetize you for anything, really. Um, so, yeah, um, thank you so much for having for 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 being on this podcast. Um, did you have any final words that you like to give a message out to the viewers? We had such a great conversation um, talking about yeah. so many different issues that relate to the working class. Uh, you know, I I just I really really enjoy. Uh, this is the second time I've done your podcast with you, and I really enjoy it because I think I feel like it's a it's it's a really great opportunity to have a public discussion about some really critical issues um, in ways that, you know, very often we just don't have the opportunity to do that. Um, so props to you for podcast for doing such a great job. Oh, I'm really you. always I'm really glad to be able to contribute to it a little bit. Um, and I guess to our listening audience, um, boy. Um, I guess what I would say is this, um, you know, the world is changing. Um, we can see today more than ever that uh, all roads lead to socialism. Uh, every, every path of national development and every international development that's positive, um, that points towards, the towards any kind of a future for the, for the people on this planet. Um, is rooted in socialism. It doesn't make any difference whether it's, you know, the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, or whether it's, um, or whether it's uh, the, the the Cuban Revolution or the Chinese Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution. Um, you know, uh, they've these have taken a lot of different forms. People are involved in a lot of different ways of struggling, but at the end of it, there we all understand now. We're, we are moving in the direction of the final emancipation of the working class. The working class becomes the class that rules the planet, um, you know, and, and it, it, the, the, the centuries and, and centuries 
of human existence in which there was a parasitic, you know, vampire-like class uh, that extracted the life essence of the rest of the of humanity uh, in order to exist. Those days are coming to an end, um, and for the well-being of the human race and for the well-being of the planet, we have to do everything possible to speed their demise. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> you have a really good day. We'll talk you to too. you later, my friend. All right. Collectively transforming community. Peace in our human family. Volume unity. Divine light shining individually. Collectively transforming community. Peace in our human family. As above, so below, feel the pain in my soul, the red pill dissolved. Organized, no matter the cost, politicians start wars, they don't fight, they sit the poor. And nothing lasts forever as long as we stay together, give hell to the masses, watch the unity rapture. This is for the kids and the culture, it's one love, one growth, one light, light warriors.